0: I'd love for you to turn in your Bibles with me this morning to Matthew chapter 16, uh, we'll be beginning in verse 13. Uh, we've been in this uh, series, Kingdom Come, for a couple of months now, tracing out this theme of the kingdom of heaven throughout the gospel of Matthew. Uh, most notably, tracing out this theme, we keep coming back to not just the kingdom as some kind of nebulous entity, but to our King, Jesus, and the way that He reigns and rules in our lives. And even though we've just been through a handful of sermons so far in this gospel, we are already now this morning where we reach in our study well into the third and final year of Jesus' ministry and Jesus' life. And it's important to note that because this is kind of becoming a little bit of crunch time for Jesus' followers, for His disciples. As we know in the second half of Matthew's story, we see Jesus bound for the cross, And so he needs now to know if his disciples are aware of who he truly is and why he has truly come. Something I want to draw our attention to that we often see Jesus do in the Gospels that doesn't seem to make a lot of sense to us, seems kind of weird or odd, uh, but is important for our passage this morning, is that often Jesus will do something amazing or miraculous or incredible. He'll have some kind of astounding teaching or do something amazing in somebody's life, and instead of encouraging people to, to spread the news far and wide, Jesus does something weird. He says, shh, he says, don't, don't tell anybody, don't, don't tell anyone yet what you've seen, what you've heard, what I've done. And I say that's weird because you would think that if your mission was to come as a king and to spread the, the good news of the kingdom of God, you would want everybody to know what you are doing. Scholars often call this the messianic secret. And what Jesus is doing is as he's telling people not to tell others about him. He's doing so because he knows that people won't get it yet. He doesn't want to under mis, people to misunderstand to to put their own twist on or to put their own interpretation on his identity as the Messiah before he really truly reveals why he has come. Sometimes it's hard to filter through the caricatures of Jesus to find the real Jesus. There's some pretty weird Jesus's out there. Uh, actually, if you do a quick Google search, uh, you can find, as I did this week, some unique Jesus products. I'm going to show you a few. All of these are real. You can go to Amazon.com and buy these today if you wanted to. I don't know why you would, but it's available to you. Uh, the first I found is bobblehead Jesus. Um, I don't. There might be like a trademark on bobblehead because he was actually called wobblehead Jesus, but. You know, I guess that's a way to get a guaranteed yes for all of your prayers. There's uh, pencil topper Jesus, uh, I maybe to discourage cheating in the classroom, I'm not sure. Uh, Jesus bandages, um, you know, even the great physician needs some help sometimes perhaps. And I love on the box it says a free prize inside. I just, I almost want to buy this to find what the free prize really is. You know, I'm, the mystery has intrigued me. And then my favorite one, the Jesus car air freshener, you can't probably read it from where you are, but there's two slogans on there. It smells like heaven in here, and do you want me to take the wheel? I just, there's some weird Jesuses out there. Uh, We're living in a world full of caricatures of Jesus. And so the question is as important now today as it was two millennia ago, who is Jesus really? What kind of king is, Is this? And this is what we're getting to this morning as Jesus reveals more about who he is and why he came to his disciples today. Up until this point, Jesus has established himself as a powerful miracle worker, as an authoritative teacher, as a restorative healer. But those are all just subsets of his greater identity. And so the question this morning that Jesus has for his disciples is do you get it? Do they understand what it means for Jesus to be the Messiah? And here's why that matters. Understanding who Jesus is leads us to understand who we are to be as his followers. Understanding what Jesus intends to do leads us to understand what is required of us. Jesus' identity is more than stating who he is. It's stating the hold that he has on our lives and what he calls us to do as his disciples. To get some context into this this morning, Jesus, his time on earth is nearing its end. He has continually come into conflict with the Jewish leaders. It's getting increasingly worse. The pronouncement of his kingdom will soon bring him into conflict with Rome itself. And so it's imperative to his disciples, the the men left to carry on this kingdom work. It's imperative that they understand just what kind of king Jesus is. It's not that this plan will catch him off guard. He knows, as Bill said this morning, that he is resolutely set out for the cross. He knows his mission, but do they? And so Jesus prompts them with the question. He says, who do people say that I am? It's a weird question, kind of like, well, does Jesus really not know? He can hear as well as his disciples. And since when does Jesus even care what people think of him? But once a person said it, well, He doesn't ask to get an answer. He asks to get a response. That's kind of how I think of uh, my wife. She's a kindergarten teacher, and if you were to visit her classroom, you would probably find her asking questions all day long that she surely knows the answer to. You know, boys and girls, get out your rulers, and who can tell me what kinds of things in our classroom might be one inch long? And they're wandering around, and if you were watching that without understanding the context, you would be thinking, who is this lady, and how did she get into this position? I mean, surely she should know the answer to this question. But we don't always ask to get an answer, but to get a response. And Jesus is doing the same thing. Jesus' reputation has gained quite a following, and while not everybody liked him, nearly everybody had an opinion about him. And so the disciples begin to spout off some of the popular opinions in Matthew 16, verse 13. this is when Jesus came to the region of Caesarea Philippi, he asked his disciples, who do people say the Son of Man is? And on this rock I will build my church, and the gates of Hades will not overcome it. I will give you the keys of the kingdom of heaven. Whatever you bind on earth will be bound in heaven, and whatever you loose on earth will be loosed in heaven. Then he ordered his disciples not to tell anyone that he was the Messiah. There you see it. Jesus asks his disciples, you know, who, who am I? What have you heard about me? And I can imagine the conversation with something like, you know, Matthew saying, oh, that's at the... Marketplace the other day, and I heard someone say that you thought, they, thought, they, they thought you had the, the boldness of John the Baptist. Or Andrew chiming in saying, yeah, that's not what I heard. Last I knew you were being compared to the power of Elijah. Or James and John, you know, last we were at the temple, there was a cluster of people discussing that you had the spirit of Jeremiah. They weren't quite sure who he was. But at the very least, they knew he was a prophet. You look at the prophets of old, and you look at Jesus... And you see some distinct similarities. Like the prophets, Jesus never pulled any of his punches. He spoke the raw truth. Like the prophets, when he was confronted with injustice and corruption of the religious and political powers of the day, he spoke up about it. Eventually, they all got beat up or killed for their message. But Jesus takes it one step further beyond this for his identity. He moves from the theoretical to the personal. He says, who do you say that I am? And that's when Peter steps up. Peter's often the spokesman for the disciples, and as he steps up, I can't help but think that the disciples are wondering, oh boy, you know, Peter is kind of known for his big mouth, but sometimes it takes a big mouth to make a bold claim. And so Peter says, we know that you are the Messiah, the Christ, the, the anointed one, the one set apart by God, empowered with his spirit to come and change everything. It's an amazing declaration. It's one of the clearest depictions of Jesus' identity so far. It's so formative. In fact, we, we often use his confession as uh, the formula that we ask people to repeat before baptism. But here's the thing. Peter has the right title, but the wrong concept of what Messiah means. This is why Jesus does that thing where he orders his disciples to not tell anyone who he was. He's saying, don't Speak of my identity until you understand my mission. He continues in verse 21. It says, from that time on, Jesus began to explain to his disciples that he must go to Jerusalem and suffer many things at the hands of the elders, the chief priests, and the teachers of the law, and that he must be killed and on the third day raised to life. Peter took him aside and began to rebuke him. Never, Lord, he said, this shall never happen to you. Jesus turned and said to Peter, get behind me, Satan. You are a stumbling block to me. You do not have in mind the concerns of God, but merely human concerns. I love Peter. Uh, Maybe I see myself in him more often than I would like, but here's a guy with such great intentions, but he has a problem. He lacks that filter that stops what pops in your head from coming straight out your mouth sometimes. Peter would be the guy to go up to a woman and ask when she is due, only to hear, I'm not pregnant. You know, it kind of gets him in some difficult situations. He can't help but speak his mind, and sometimes this leads him to amazing declarations. Other times this leads him to moments of rebuke, or in this case, this morning, both. It's ironic that Peter follows up the greatest declaration of Jesus' identity thus far. It's so great, we call it the Great Confession with a statement that Jesus leads him to say, you are a rock, but you are also a stumbling block to me. When Jesus uses this opportunity to tell his disciples about his approaching death, about his mission, this is too much for Peter. And so he does the the noble act of standing with his king, with his Messiah. Peter takes him aside and says, look, Jesus, you got to work on your PR skills a little. You you can't be going and saying stuff like you're going to die and the religious leaders are going to be the ones to kill you if you're going to be the Messiah you have to start acting like it. It's easy to rag on Peter but if you put yourself in his sandals he's just following the expectations of the day. I mean he's exactly right with the interpretation of what the Messiah would be what he would do. If you put yourself in his position it'd be like being a campaign manager for the next president. And everything leading up to the primaries has, has been going great. You know, huge crowds are turning out for your rallies and your speeches. You're, you're, you know, people have been looking for a president like this for a long time. He's so great that he's even got some bipartisan conversation going. This guy's so iconic, he's going to be like the George, next George Washington. He's got a huge following. All the polls are pointing in his favor. But then all of a sudden, in one of his big debates, he begins saying some crazy things he begins to go off script he begins to promise higher taxes and to raise the deficit to increase crime and to have more employment to push for national insecurity as president you don't promise a worse standard of living as the messiah you don't predict your death that's that's not what messiahs do that's not what messiahs are for There were a lot of views on who the Messiah would be, different views in Jesus' time, but they all revolved around this kingly figure who would triumphantly appear in power and might and deliver Israel from her enemies. And yet Jesus says that he will not take up the crown, but the cross. Jesus responds to Peter and he says, get behind me, Satan. And I read that and it's like, "Whoa, back it down, Jesus. It's kind of harsh. I mean, this guy's just... He's wanting to support you here. But I think Jesus recognizes that Peter is tempting him with the same essence of Satan's temptations in the wilderness from chapter 4 of Matthew's gospel. The kingdom without the cross, the, the glory without the gore, the shortcut to this kingdom. Peter is effectively telling Jesus, you don't You don't need the cross. The cross is excruciating. The cross is messy. The cross is humiliating. Literally, he says, God forbid you go to the cross. And even though our language might not be the same, all of us, I think, at one time have done what Peter did that day. All of us have at one time or another attempted to hand Jesus his job description. To say, okay, Jesus, here's the deal, here's how this works, so let's get some quid pro quo here. I scratch you, your back, you scratch mine. Or we read about Jesus and we think, well, Jesus might have said that, but, but he doesn't surely mean it. That's not how my Jesus would do things. And as we've tried to hand Jesus the parameters of what is acceptable behavior for him, we've created often Jesuses that don't look much like Jesus at all. These caricatures. Maybe it's for you or someone you know, genie Jesus. You know, I go to church, I worship you, I give you an offering, and you give me that promotion. Or you make my kids behave better, or you protect me and watch out for me and promise that my life will be easier. Maybe the character we've constructed is patriot Jesus. That's who Peter's Jesus was. Jesus, who had the the strength of the nation as his primary focus. We like to picture Jesus on a white steed, waving an American flag, leading the charge into battle against all who would malign the USA, especially prominent when elections are approaching. Everyone's quick to rally Jesus to their cause. If you were really a Christian, you'd vote this way or you'd vote that way. And I'm not saying there aren't biblical principles that we bring with us into the voting booth, but if we think that Jesus' primary purpose is to assure America's continued success, then we fatally missed the point. Maybe it's what I call tender and mild Jesus. You know, the seven-pound, six-ounce sweet sleeping baby Jesus? Maybe call him silent night Jesus. You're tender and mild. That always was weird to me. I mean, can we all just make the commitment to stop describing Jesus like a rack of ribs? You know, it's just, I don't want to ruin anyone's Christmas here, but Jesus did leave the manger at some point. And I find it hard to describe someone as mild, like Jesus, who didn't hesitate to challenge and expose the religion police of his day, who through one sermon whipped people into such a frenzy, they were ready to stone him to death right then and there. He was ultimately marked for death because he was viewed as a menace to society and an enemy of the state. I mean, certainly Jesus was selfless and humble, but should we mistake him as mild? And again, here's why this matters. Because how we see Jesus shapes his role and shapes his rule in our lives. If we say that Jesus is a good teacher, then we will listen to some of the things he has to say and follow them, but only as they make sense to us. If we see that Jesus is just a great healer, then we will expect him to perform to our every need until he doesn't meet our expectations. If we say that Jesus is just a holy man, then we will not respect the humanity of him, not learn from what it means to suffer for the kingdom as he did. And yet, if we say Jesus is the Christ, the Son of the living God, the Lord, the God of the universe, then that changes everything about how we live in response to him. So many of us try to follow a Jesus for our own design, so much so that we might actually miss what he truly wants to do in us. Verse 24, Jesus continues, it says, Then Jesus said to his disciples, Whoever wants to be my disciple must deny themselves and take up their cross and follow me. For whoever wants to save their life will lose it. Whoever loses their life for me will find it. What good will it be for someone to gain the whole world yet forfeit their soul? Or what can anyone give in exchange for their soul? For the Son of Man is going to come in His Father's glory with His angels, and then He will reward each person according to what they have done. Truly I tell you, some who are standing here will not taste death before they see the Son of Man coming in His kingdom. Knowing who Jesus is is vitally important because as Jesus defines His Messiahship, He's also defining discipleship. Let me say that again. As Jesus defines Messiahship, He's also defining discipleship. Matthew's message going into the second half of this book isn't just that Jesus is headed for the cross, but that He's taking us with Him. That Jesus will suffer, and so will those of us who follow Him. And so the question becomes, will you follow Jesus even if He's not who you thought he was, even if you find out that the mission that you thought he had is vitally different and he wants to bring us along in that, even if our life doesn't get better and everything falls into place, even if it means you lose everything, your life included. To be honest, thinking through the implications of this statement where Jesus says, take up your cross made me really kind of think this week because it means something different for each of us. What what does it mean for a 33-year-old middle-class 21st century American Christian to take up my cross? What does it mean for an 85-year-old widowed retiree to take up her cross? What does it mean for a 52-year-old married father of three to bring up and take up his cross? It's something I can't answer for you. You have to think of your own life. Look at the things we have to deny in ourselves, the things that we have to sacrifice in order to follow Jesus. It's one of Jesus' most shocking statements of all time, but we often trivialize it by applying it to just difficult problems. You know, I've struggled with my weight my whole life, it's just my cross to bear. Or, you know, I've got a terrible job, my boss is no good, but it's just my cross to bear. Now, the cross is reserved for revolutionaries, for low-class government insurrectionists, and not only revolutionaries, but revolutionaries who failed in the revolution. The cross was meant to prolong death as long as possible, to inflict as much pain as possible, to put the criminal on humiliating display for all to see. What does it look like to live as crucified people? When we live as crucified people, our desires become secondary to our obedience. When we live as crucified people, our holiness trumps our happiness. When we live as crucified people, what we own doesn't own us. When we live as crucified people, we can confidently affirm what Paul says in Galatians 2.20, I have been crucified with Christ, and I no longer live, but Christ lives in me. The life I now live and the body I live by faith in the Son of God who loved me and gave himself for me. Jesus tells us that following him might not mean comfort or protection or a happy ending and might, and by his estimation, will lead us to, to shame and humiliation and death. But that, of course, is not the end of the story. Because our march of death is met with the promise of life. Jesus doesn't just promise us his death, he promises us his resurrection into new life. Should we choose to take up our cross and follow him. The message this morning is that God has a plan. He knows what he's doing, even when the plan might not make sense to us. And when we have the confidence that Jesus is who we say He is, Messiah, King, Son of the living God, we don't need to fear that plan or try to protect Him from it. God has a plan, but it might not be our plan. God's plan for our lives is a complete and unconditional surrender of who we are and and what we have planned. That we might know who Jesus is, but we can never be who he wants us to be. If our proclamation of him gets in the way of his purposes for us. God has a plan, and it might not be our plan. And yet the world wants to stop it. However backwards it may seem, we have the ultimate victory in death. And the greatest thing the world can do to stop God's plan is to tempt us into believing That we can come to Jesus without bringing a cross along with us. While we are promised a death that the world does not understand, we are also promised a life that without Jesus the world will not experience. And so this morning I simply want to invite you to experience the life that Jesus has for you. We want to help you come to a place where you can say, I'm following you, Jesus, with the cross on my back and my life in your hands if that's a decision that you need to make this morning or something that you need to prayer about or prayer about anything at all, I'd love for you to come up and speak with us as we sing this next song. Would you please pray with me? Father God, we come before you this morning and we seek to do so to see Jesus for who he really is not the caricatures of him that we make up, not the opinions that we have of him, not the things that get in the way and cloud our judgment of a clear image of who he is. To simply see Jesus as the Messiah, the Son, the living God, our King, who rules and reigns in our lives. And I pray that as we see Jesus clearly, it would also, we would also see in us this mission that he had. yes, he came and walked and worked and healed and saved people from their, their sins in the moment, but ultimately he went to the cross to save all people for all time. But the cross was, was not a, uh, a surprise to him, not a flaw in the plan, but it was the plan. And as we realize that, I pray that you would lead us to see in ourselves this call that Jesus has made on us. That we would see in ourselves the, the ways that we need to sacrifice and surrender, that we need to carry our cross, that so we might follow him faithfully. Jesus, we thank you for the death that Jesus died in our behalf. And I pray that we would have the courage, as he calls us, to lay down our lives in response we would do so, understanding that we have the promise of new life in you. And nothing this world can throw at us and nothing that you can ask of us will strip away the life that we have in Jesus, that he lives through the resurrection, the life that we live through your spirit, and the hope that we have for after our deaths. God, we thank you for Jesus, and we pray that we continue to just follow him faithfully in all that we do. pray this in Jesus' name.